we're going to continue on in this series we've been doing called God Part One. We've been walking through the central story of the Old Testament, which is the Exodus story, trying to figure out who the God of the Bible is, namely by looking at what he does, just holding on to that age-old belief that actions speak louder than words. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at how God does all this amazing stuff in the story before ever asking anything of his people. When you read the Exodus, you'll see that God liberates, he leads, he fights for his people before he puts any expectations on them. It's just given as an act of grace. But this week, we're going to look at a shift in the story. See, what we're going to start looking at is as Exodus goes along, God begins seeking to reshape and transform these people that he has liberated and freed. What God does is he does this by grace And then you start to see some expectation of response to that grace. You start seeing God trying to turn his people into something new in the world. What I find really interesting about this process is that he starts with something I usually would not expect that a God would start with if he was trying to do this. He starts with their provision and their generosity in response to that provision. And as I prepared for this week, I really got to thinking about some of the most generous moments um, that I've experienced in my life, when people have just given me much as like an act of grace. And the thought that really came to me was when I was in Guatemala several years ago. You see, I was at one of those phases of my life where I was in between jobs and I was kind of trying to find myself. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go help out with one of these partner organizations that E3 works with. And I went down to Guatemala and I worked with our organization there called Porch de Solomon, which is led by two longtime E3ers who lived down there full time, Lloyd and Melanie Monroe. And what they do is they, they were this couple that just sold everything they had. He was a, a lawyer with his own firm and he has sold it to go down there and to build houses, to set up scholarships, and to start businesses for some of the poor indigenous communities down there. They do great work. And what I did is I just went, and for two months, I worked with them. I would go, and I would work on the sites. I'd build, help build houses, you know, which I'm obviously really good at. Uh, and I just gave my time. And one of the families we worked with, we worked with more than any other. And I actually got to know them really well. I would go there almost every day and work on this property. And what I loved the most about this property was actually that they had these cute little chickens that ran around. And they didn't really seem too interested in, like, containing them, so they would, like, fall in the holes you were digging. They would run around, cluck about, do stupid chicken things. And I just loved them. I came up with, like, names for them. I thought they were just the goofiest animals. Well, on my last day, I arrived, and the chickens were gone. And at first, I didn't really make much of this. I was just like, okay, I guess they wandered off. That is, until I was invited into the home by one of the family members. And the interpreter starts speaking to me and basically explains that this family had killed the chickens to make me a meal before I go to say thank you for my time. And I can't explain how big of a deal this is. You see, we go to Publix when we run out of chicken. This is a luxury for this family. This is not a commodity that they're going to replace anytime soon. This is a big part of their life. And they killed something that is central to their diet, 
and it's going to be so hard for them to replace, to give me something back. And I'm not going to lie, my first response was to refuse. That was my gut reaction. But there's a couple problems with that. One, it won't bring the chickens back. But more than that, more than that, when I started talking to them, I realized that they weren't just doing this because they had to. They were doing this because in their view, it was about who they are as a family. You see, as I talked to them, I began to realize that this family saw generosity as a singular focus tied to who they are at the identity level. That they wouldn't be who they are without being generous. And man, as I shared this meal with them, something hard began to sink in. Because what I realized, if I was being honest, is that if I were them, I would not have done this at all. I just wouldn't. They're too expensive. They're too hard to come by. I have to hold on to it, right? See, what I had came to realize in that moment was that at some point in my life, I had just become entirely lacking in generosity. What I really realized was that there were two lenses that I'd come to see my possessions and my wealth through, ownership and scarcity. In other words, I looked at everything I have as mine. It's for me, it's owed to me, it's not for anyone else, and I don't have enough of it. And if I lost any of it, well, then I wouldn't be secure anymore. And those two mindsets had made me incapable of giving in the way that this family had. Because I just couldn't. You see, vividly, it became clear to me that I could be spiritually bankrupt and still be wealthy in my riches. I think what I really came to understand was in this life, in the spiritual life, our generosity has far less to do with what, how much we have and far more to do with how we view what we have. And I think it is fascinating that this is the mindset that God seeks to undo and unravel and transform first and foremost after he has liberated his people. This God looks at this idea of reshaping their understanding of their wealth, their possessions, how they live in the world with what they have as the first thing that he needs to do to transform into the, them into the people he calls them to be. To transform them, as you'll come to see, into a generous community. And I think he seeks to do this in a powerful way. He seeks to do it by showing them who he is as a provider and through how he provides. And that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to look at who this God is through his provision. And we're going to try to see what it might teach us about who we are called to be in response to a God who provides. So we're going to pick up our story where we left off. See, we've read so far in this Exodus journey that God liberated his people out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea as the waters parted. And now he's guiding them through the desert which is a dangerous and scarce place. And as they go through this desert, we find this story about God beginning to provide for them in a place without many resources. We're actually going to pick up in Exodus 15, 22. So then Moses, we read, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. They grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? 
Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. So to summarize, they have this legitimate need. They begin to grumble out of fear. It's not going to get met. God provides, and we as the reader are like, so everything's cool now, right? They're going to quit whining. They're going to trust. God's got this. But I have good news because that would make the story end, and the story doesn't end. It picks up again in Exodus 16.1, immediately after this. We read, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron again. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Not true. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So we have this story where God provides for a need, and immediately afterward, when the next need arrives, they do the exact same thing. And I think this story is fascinating. You see, to unpack it, I actually want to start with this statement about Israelites grumbling, because we actually miss a part of this without getting into the culture and the context of this passage. So first of all, it says that the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. However, in the ancient world, there was this thing that would happen where if a king was not with his people, he would send a representative to represent him amongst the people. And that's the role that Moses and Aaron have played in this story. If you understood ancient times, a Lord's representative was a stand-in for his very presence and his very voice amongst his people. So when it says they grumble against Aaron and Moses, what they're really doing is grumbling against God. But even more important, the word grumble is a little misunderstood in English. We understand it kind of as complaining, right? When Hebrew, it's actually a totally unique word to these desert sections of the story. And it is far more charged and intense than just complaining. What it better, what it's better translated at in Hebrew is to grow or to represent oneself as resentful through a complaint. In other words, it's to express deep resentment through a statement of complaint. So in other words, the Israelites want something. They don't get it immediately, and what do they do? They don't just complain. They become resentful at the situation and at the God that they believe should be meeting this need right now. And I think we can sit there and be like, how does that happen? This God has done so much for them. How could they possibly be resentful? And I think to get at the answer of that question, I actually want to explore what these scholars point out as a cycle that is built into this story that we see escalating and repeating that is central to what it's trying to teach us. I just want to throw it up here. You see, in each story, what we see is first an unmet need. They're in a hard circumstance. They're not getting something that they perceive that they need to survive. And what continues the cycle on is actually their response. What's the first thing they respond with? Forgetfulness. They forget that God has provided for them over and over and over again, and that he probably is going to provide for this need too. But they forget about that. And if that was the end, it wouldn't be that bad, except for what do we see. It builds into doubt. If you notice, the Israelites stop saying, I wonder when I'm going to get my needs met, and I don't think I'm ever going to get my needs met. It becomes doubt. 
that what they need is going to come to them at all, which, when left unchecked, festers into distrust. I think it's a fascinating note that in the first story, they're just asking, hey, when are we going to get water? But in the second story, they begin to distrust God's intentions and character as a provider entirely. It's not just, we don't think that we're going to get this need met. It's, you have intentionally denied us what we need because you want us to die out here. And once they distrust that provision, that fear of scarcity kicks in, doesn't it? There's not enough for me. If I don't get what I think I need, I'm going to die. It's over. And boy, when that fear is inside of a person, you start to see where the resentment comes from. Because I think when you match that fear of scarcity and that distrust of God's intentions, it becomes pretty easy to say, I resent this God because he is intentionally not giving me what I need. What I find most interesting about the story, though, is what causes it to repeat. It's this last step. You see, this fear and resentment produces within the Israelites a response of greed. They respond to this perceived scarcity by just trying to accumulate as much as they can get, whether they need it or not. And this greed that's at the center of their complaints and their response is actually kind of easy to miss if you don't read the rest of the Exodus. You see, this is a fun little fact. If you go back, it says that the Israelites leave Egypt with a massive amount of livestock and herds. And nowhere in the story does it say that they used those or that they ate them. In fact, it would be near impossible for that to be the case after just two months of traveling. And I think this is interesting, because while the lack of water in that first part of the story was a real, legitimate need, they needed that water to survive, and God provided, the lack of meat is not. In the second story, they have grown resentful over a need that in reality has already been provided for. You see, what we find in the second story is not that there's a real need. It's that they have failed to see God's provision at all. They have grown resentful over their inability to see that God has already given them what they need. And I say that this is greed because of why that's the case, why they can't see this as provision. You see, in the ancient world, again, if you had a herd or a large amount of livestock, it meant that you were wealthy and that you had security. It was a sign of your status. It was a sign of your strength and power in the world and your wealth. So it's not that the Israelites don't have meat. It's that the Israelites want meat without sacrificing the livestock that they've been given to get it. It's that the Israelites want what they want without losing any of their wealth or security in the process. I mean, this is the formula for greed. What we see in the Israelites is this cycle playing out of doubt, distrust, fear, scarcity, resentment, and at some point, it becomes less about a specific situation and just an internal posture of greed within them. If you notice, the reason it repeats is because it's not about their circumstance anymore. It's that whenever a perceived need comes along, it just plays because, quite frankly, it has become how they see and live within their world. So they end up in this space where all of their circumstances are viewed through those two lenses, scarcity and ownership. All of this is mine, and I can never have enough of it. 
So I just gotta get more. I just gotta get more. I just gotta get more to be secure in this scarce place. And in that place, they are incapable of perceiving their needs correctly or seeing God's provision as provision at all anymore. Because all they can see is stuff that they think is theirs and that desperate need to get more of it. And I don't know about y'all, but I think this story preaches. I think in our culture today, this just hits me in the gut. You see, what I think is that many of us begin every day, every week, believing that we don't have enough, that what we have is ours, and that we will only be secure on the other side of more, more, more. I don't know about you, but I approach my week Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I just start looking for my provision. What are the things that I need? What are those things that I want? What can I not be okay without? And for me, it's candy, right? I love candy, and I need my candy. So I start on my week, and it's Monday, and I'm like, where is God going to hook me up with the candy I need? And I know that every week of my life, God has given me more than enough candy, right? If I ate all the candy that I've had available to me, I would die. So this God has provided me with enough candy. So I come to Monday, and I just take my provision for Monday. And I'm like, this is just so great. And I start eating it, start eating it. It starts to dwindle, and I begin to forget, don't I? And what happens is I begin to doubt Well, what if this isn't enough? What if I don't have enough candy tomorrow? I know what I'm going to do. On Monday, I'll just get enough candy for Tuesday also. And once I do that, once I make sure that I have candy on Tuesday, two days worth of candy, boy, then I'm going to be fine. I'm not going to be afraid anymore. I'm going to eat all this candy. It's going to be great. And wouldn't you know it, the fear and the doubt starts kicking back in. And then it's, I don't know. I mean, what if there's not enough? Maybe I should get enough for Wednesday. Oh, no, 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 no. It's actually after I get enough for Thursday. Oh, man, wait, 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 wait. No, I need enough for Friday. I need enough for Friday. Oh, no, 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 it was Saturday. It was Saturday. Maybe it's enough for the whole week. Oh, no, 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 maybe it's enough for the whole month. Maybe it's enough candy for the whole year. Maybe I just need enough for my entire life, and wouldn't you know it, I spend my entire life trying to fill a bucket that will never be full. Because what has happened in this moment is that suddenly, suddenly, my bucket is overflowing. I have more candy than I could ever eat, and I still feel insecure. I still don't feel safe because there is not enough in that worldview. See, what I have found is that before I know it, that doubt has become distrust. What if I lose my candy? What if someone takes it from me? What if God doesn't want me to have candy at all? And in that place, I begin to see this bucket through that lens of ownership. It's mine, and no matter how much is in it, I see scarcity. It's not enough. And before I can even blink, that becomes greed. It's mine. I need it. I'm owed it. And God help you if you try to take even a little bit of it. Whether it's a person trying to or if it's a God asking me to give it up. 
See, after enough time, this cycle, when fed, just becomes how I see my world, doesn't it? I think I start looking at my entire world as nothing more than a list of needs. One more after another after another, and I begin to live my time, my entire life, afraid of not getting enough or afraid of losing what I already have. Anyone been there before? And from that place, I end up telling myself that I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna be afraid if I can just get to the other side of one more thing. I create another finish line that I know I'm gonna reach and just find another finish line after that, but I tell myself if I could just get blank, then, then I'm gonna be fine. And I become incapable of seeing what I actually have as a good gift of provision or trusting that this is a God who provides. And greed becomes my entire purpose of living in this world. It's not about God's kingdom. It's not about doing good works. It's not about having a relationship with him. It's not about being transformed. It's about accumulating more, more, more until I die. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the heart posture that God seeks to transform first in his people. I think he knows that if he doesn't undo and reshape this mindset, that they will never become the people that he intends for them to be because they will never see the world or who he is in the way that he needs them to see it as. So what does this God do? I think this God does something powerful. He begins to provide in a way that begins to undo and reshape and transform this deep brokenness of their heart and rechange this entire heart posture. I think he begins to reshape his people in this really cool way. We actually find it in Exodus 16, 11. We see God's response. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the Israelites' camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded you. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omar for each person in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omar, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning because God will provide the same the next day. Each day he provides for them bread from heaven called manna. Each day, he provides meat in the form of quail. Each day, he gives them what they need and no more. Each day, he makes them live in the exact opposite way that the scarcity, the ownership, the greed tells them they have to to survive in this place. Each day, he reshapes them by making them practice trust in a God who provides generously. They have to trust that God will provide not some wild accumulation and frantic compiling of the resources around them. 
You see, I think this God makes them practice this daily because let's be honest, we wouldn't change without it. I don't know about you, but the truth is I choose this cycle. If I am left to my own devices, I choose it even though it makes me sick. What I have found is that I just find a deep sense of comfort and false control in the idea that my life will just be better after that next thing. Insert a blank. If I could just get blank, then I would be okay. If I could just get blank, then I would be happy. If I could just get blank, then I'd be content with my life. See, I find that comforting even though I know it's a lie because it gives me something to chase after even if I know it won't fix me. So this God knows that that is something that he must unravel, he must change, he must reshape by making them practice the exact opposite each day. He makes them practice a discipline of surrender and trust to begin rewiring that mindset. You see, what I find is as I buy into this way of living, this trust, I find that while I'm kicking and screaming and being dragged along, I end up falling into something new. See, what I find is that when I buy into this way of provision, that posture begins to change. What I find is that God already knew something that I just didn't. That in the end of the day, what I need is not the fulfillment of every need I can dream of, but rather what I need is to find the peace on the other side of a life of trust, contentment, and a God who has me. See, and when I live in that space, day by day, practicing each day, I begin to learn to see what I have as a gift. And I begin to learn to see my life with gratitude. Each day, bit by bit, I learn to be present with what is and not constantly chasing some future that will never come. And I don't miss my life. Each day, bit by bit, I learn to let go a little bit of that gripping fear and anxiety and resentment found on the other side of scarcity. Does anyone want that? What I find is each day I learn a little bit to be more like he is in my generosity and my trust. You see, we cannot forget that in God's story, this beautiful provision is something that we are called to respond to and be transformed by. I think when you look at this text, you see something unbelievable. You see a community that started out in this place of greed, and what do you see barely a week into it? Some had little, some had much. They came together, and the needs of the people were met. I think by the end of this this process, what God wants to see is this community of scarcity and greed transformed into a community of provision and generosity because that makes them into a community capable of caring for those in need in our world. I think that we have the opportunity to live a life that makes us into people who can be the very provision of God in how they care for the least of these. I think that's what God's trying to do. And we cannot do any of that when we live in the cycle of fear, scarcity, Greed, ownership. Because all we do is become people who are wealthy in our riches and utterly bankrupt in our spirit. We need to be 
a generous people if we are to be the people of God. I cannot put that bluntly enough. But when we let him reshape us in this way, around his provision, when his total self-giving generosity makes us into a community of total self-giving generosity, I see kingdom things happen. I don't know about you, but in this very community, I have seen the kingdom of God built on the generosity of, of you people. I have seen growth groups in this community step up and provide money and resources to help with cancer treatments, to help with school scholarships, to help with a new car, to help with infinite number of meals for people who just could not get them. I have seen people in this community give generously to help feed people who would be hungry without it. I have seen people in this community, all ages of life, donate their money and their time to building wheelchair ramps for the disabled all over Leon County. I have seen a growth group build a ramp for someone who had not left their home in two years. And they got to watch that person go outside for the first time. That is the kingdom of God. I have seen people in this community donate hours of their life, their money to painting murals and to mentoring kids at W.T. Moore to give kids in this community hope and something to believe in and something beautiful to look at. I have seen people in this community give up everything they have to go across an ocean to Uganda, to Guatemala for one purpose, to ease the suffering of people that they've never met. I have seen this community give the very money we just sent to Haiti, which has been God's provision through us. All I can say is I've seen transform people transform people with their generosity. I've seen a family in Guatemala change my entire life with one act, generosity. And these things are only possible through a transformed people who leave behind those cycles, who leave behind the scarcity, who leave behind the ownership, who leave behind the greed for something new, something defined by an utterly generous God seeking to create an utterly generous people because that's how he knows that we will change our world. None of this can happen without the generosity of people transformed. And I just want to get real and get a little practical as we end our time. You see, I think all of us need to grapple with this every day, even though none of us want to. I think it makes me feel so gross to even get up here and talk to you guys about it. I always feel like I draw the short straw when I have to give these talks because none of us want to talk about money, generosity, resources because we live in a culture that tells us that we shouldn't. We live in a culture that tells us we got to hold on to what we got and that's exactly why we need to talk about it because if we don't, these things will bind us and keep us from being the people that we are called to be. I don't know about you, but it's just the air I breathe without a God who changes that atmosphere. So we need to talk about it because this battle between greed and generosity is central to who we are called to be as the people of God. So I just wanna, I just wanna close by asking just some hard questions and maybe sharing just a couple of practical steps that I have found in my own journey 
quite frankly, from greed to being a more generous person. Because I've already been very honest with you about where I started at. I think the first question I would ask is, how are we changing how we think about God's provision? You see, I think we cannot change our mindset. We cannot change how we view what we own. We cannot change our heart posture without changing the way we see what we've been given. Are you taking regular, daily steps to help change the way you see what you have in your life? Because what I would argue is if you're not, you're in that cycle. So are you doing things like using prayers of detachment? Every day I pray, God, God, remind me that I'm not what I own. God, remind me that what I own is not most important to me. Are you practicing spiritual disciplines of simplicity? Just cleaning house. Going to your house, you have a bunch of stuff that you haven't used in years, and the only reason you're holding on to it is fear. I am holding on to this because I might need it one day. No, you will not. <laughs> Are you practicing just getting rid of it, returning to simplicity? Are you practicing fasting of the things that bind us in this culture? Fasting from Netflix, fasting from eating out, fasting from any number of ways that we spend money just to see what it might be like without it. Because what I have found is when I fast from those things, I begin to realize I don't need them as much as I think I do. Are we practicing things like that? The second question is, how are we practicing it as a spiritual discipline? You see, I think this story teaches me that a heart of generosity is only cultivated through a daily discipline. I think I often want to believe that I'm just waiting for that big thing to come up and then I'm going to be generous and it's going to change the world. But the fact is, who I am in my daily life is who I'm going to be in the moments of stress and high stakes also. It is a delusion that I tell myself that I'm just going to magically be a more generous person when a real need comes around. If I don't practice it daily, I am not generous when it matters most. Period. End of story. So, we need to practice becoming generous as a real, regular spiritual discipline. Do you find daily ways to express your gratitude? Gratitude list, a great one. Write down five things you're grateful for every day. And at the end of the week, see if any of your junk made it on there. Because it helps you rewire what's really important in your life, which changes how you see it. Prayers of grace and gratitude. Do you come together as a family or even by yourself and just thank God intentionally for the things in your life and just see how that changes how you look at them? One of my favorite, well, not actually favorite, but one of the most important things I had to do was start giving as a first fruit action. What I mean by that is I had to start Looking at generosity is not just something I do when convenient, not just as something that I do when it feels good, not just something I do when a big thing comes along, but as a regular, planned, budgeted, disciplined, first thing every month. You see, what I found is that when I live in that space of spontaneous giving only, I just don't give. But when I started doing it with intentionality, when I started telling myself, giving to the poor is something I should do before I pay the Netflix bill. Giving to those in need is maybe something I should do before I go to Burger King. When I just did that thing first, I began to change. And wouldn't you know it, so did my priorities. And 
I mean, I only got real when I made generosity something that mattered to me more than those wants and those needs and those desires that are just never ending. And finally, what I would ask is, are you growing through your generosity and in your generosity? See, I think many of us approach things like giving as just something the Bible tells us to do because we have to because God's a buzzkill. But the truth is that's not what it is. I think the Bible has a much greater sense of what generosity is meant to do. It's meant to change us. It's meant to do something inside us that is good. I don't think anyone in this room would with real honesty on their own say that they do not have fear when it comes to their finances and their financial security. I think we as human beings are incredibly afraid in that area. And it reminds me that the Bible teaches me that my response to God's provision can break me free of that fear. It can make me live a life that transforms and transcends the insecurities of scarcity that just make me sick. And I don't know about you, but isn't that something you want to do? This is meant to do something for us. God calls us to grow in this area, not just because he's a God who loves obedience, but because he wants to see us made new. So are you growing in your generosity just like any other spiritual discipline, like prayer, reading the scripture, service, because it's equally as important to you becoming the person that God calls you to be as any of those things. And is that practice helping you grow in your ability to trust and to act from that trust? Is it helping you to grow in your capacity to trust a God that provides with a, by responding in generosity towards our world? Because I believe that this God sees this as crucial for being who we are called to be. And I want to close with the words of the famous Christian author C.S. Lewis, because quite frankly, he says it better than I ever could. I mean, he gives me this quote, and when I first read it, it nailed me to a wall, and I have not forgot it since, because I think it just hits the importance of what this generosity mindset is meant to do in our world. He said it this way, some people nowadays say that charity ought to be unnecessary, and that instead of giving to the poor, we ought to be producing a society in which there were no poor to give to. And they may be quite right in saying that we ought to produce this kind of society, but if anyone thinks that as a consequence you can stop giving in the meantime, then he has parted company with all Christian morality. I do but not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be some things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity expenditures exclude them. For many of us, the great obstacle to charity lies not in our luxurious living or desire for more money, but in our fear, fear of insecurity. This must often be understood as a temptation. We have a God that provides. He provides the bucket. He provides the candy. He provides everything. 
What if the reason we were given the bucket, the reason we were given the candy, the reason that we were given anything was to give it to people who did not have it? What if we were given the gift to give it away? What if the whole reason for the gift was so we could bless someone else? How would that change how you see the bucket? How would that change how you see the candy? How would that change how you live in the world? Because, y'all, I think it makes me a lot less afraid. This is what it means to be generous. This is what it means to be the people of God. This is what it means to trust in a God who provides. And y'all, I just think it's good news. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.